So we'll need to be looking at two different books of the Bible. They are parallel practically. Jeremiah, it is generally agreed, Jeremiah collected, comprised, edited, put together, wrote First and Second Kings. Jeremiah. Ezra of the book of Ezra wrote the Chronicles. A little different aspect, but they tell the same thing. So we are getting really now into the rise of Solomon. I did some research yes, uh, what's today? yesterday in, in modern thought, in, in uh, modern standards, Solomon had a net worth of at least $2.1 trillion. Now, Musk, the guy, he's the richest man in the world. He is the first man ever in history, except for Solomon, to surpass $300 billion. So you have to add zeros onto that to get to where Solomon was. And it's difficult without looking, without this, these are conservative estimates, 2.1 trillion. One estimate was $25 trillion. Uh, and it, it's according to um, the exact weight of all the gold, and the gold would be around in various cities, and then the jewels that he had mined and so forth. But he was a rich guy. Beyond any who has ever lived, Christ himself said of Solomon, not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like this. So from the lips of Christ himself, it was acknowledged that Solomon was a very wealthy man. Everything he had was the best. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, which was his last writing as an old, withered sinful man who was in great sorrow for his life and his bad decisions. He walks through his accomplishments and the things that he did. He operated a winery. He had gold mines and diamond mines and, and uh, other types of gemstone mines. He was a an architect. He was a builder. He was a planter of gardens. He was, he was every kind of uh, student of sciences that you could imagine. It goes on. He was a horticulturist. He was into animal husbandry and I mean just everything. Because in Ecclesiastes, he said, I did this, but it was vain. It was empty. I did this and this above all any, above everyone else. And yet it was empty. It was nothing. And it was all vain. And he talks about in 
in the Ecclesiastes how he admired the common man. He spoke of all of his wealth. He compared himself to just the common man who works, makes a living, loves his family, goes home, and can go to bed and sleep. And Solomon said, to paraphrase, I have all of this stuff and all of this money. And I think about it all the time and I can't sleep. And Solomon said that that normal guy was, he envied him. He wished that he had a life like that. Isn't that something? Uh, a multi-trillionaire, the only one who has ever lived. We'll see more of his story now as we study the rise of Solomon and we'll be back and forth tonight between 1 Kings 3 and, and 2 Chronicles 1. So Solomon begins to establish the kingdom. Let's look at it. We'll start in 1 Kings. Solomon became allied by marriage to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Okay. There are many subtle contrasts to be made between Solomon and David. David expanded and established the kingdom as a warrior. He fought the battles. He whipped the kings. He beat them into submission. On the other hand, Solomon says, I'll marry your daughter and we'll be buddies. So already we begin to see that Solomon will build and strengthen his kingdom through diplomacy, which is not what David did. He did it through strength and intimidation. And it wasn't just intimidation. It was the real thing. If they didn't go along with it, he'd pray to God. And if God said, you go for it, then he would go and whip the enemy. So there's, a, uh, there's quite a bit of contrast between the characteristic of Solomon, the characteristics of Solomon and David. Allied by marriage to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took the Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had completed building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall of Jerusalem round about. So he winds up with 700 wives, way on at the end of his story, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it sounds to me like he became an, an ally, not just with the kings of nations, but with every mayor of every city. There aren't, but uh, somebody help me out here couple of hundred nations in the world. Am I right today? Something like that. And here's a guy that has 700 wives. Well, there couldn't have been that many kings unless there were kings of city states. I don't know. But I mean, you almost have to do that on purpose. In my opinion, you have to go looking for women to marry 700 and then happen upon another 300. And that's how he, well, no wonder he was so emaciated at the end of his life. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't mention that in Ecclesiastes about, well, okay. But uh, he did in Song of Solomon. 
Well, okay, so here he is. There's a great contrast. He is the diplomat. Only the people sacrificed in high places. Well, actually, I suppose the timbre of the voice should be only the people sacrificed in the high places. They weren't sacrificing in a temple because there wasn't one. Because there was no house built unto the name of Yahweh until those days. That is the days of, of, of Solomon. Solomon loved Yahweh. There is no escaping the truth that Solomon had the best start that could have been imagined. He was brought up right and he loved Yahweh. Walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Now let me define high places here. Later on, it'll speak of groves and high places and those, those times are to be identified with idolatry. A high place in the Old Testament is a place where a worshiper went to worship deity. There was no temple here. So what the Bible is teaching us at this point is that the people didn't have a temple to go worship where they could go worship. Not everybody all of the time could, could make their way to, to Shiloh or to, to Gibeon or whatever, wherever the tabernacle would have been set up. So the people would gather together in high places to worship Yahweh. And that's what Solomon was doing. They were all, they, the, the point is made here that that was the best they could do. They are God's people and they don't have a temple. They don't have a place where they can go and worship. They just have to worship in the high places. And so Solomon himself was no different. He sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. It is to be understood that the worship here in verses two and three is the worship of Israelites to Yahweh. Not at this point, not to uh, pagan gods, not to false gods, goddesses. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. Now that's where David moved the outfittings of the tabernacle, the tent and the Ark of the Covenant and all that. It was moved from Shiloh. This is where it was. And it's at the place where David had arranged. It's, it's the land he had bought. And it's the place where the temple is to be built. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Now, why is it the great high? It's the great high place because that's where all the tabernacle stuff was set up. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. Now, to them, you see, to the worshipers who would have joined him here, and we'll talk about how they joined him when we look at it a little further in 2 Chronicles the comparison that's made, they, they would have had a, to them, this would have been a high, holy experience to see Solomon, the king, humble himself and bring in a thousand burnt offerings to be offered on that altar. In Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night 
And Elohim said, ask what I shall give you. In other words, in the dream, Elohim, God, says to Solomon, the son of David, how can I help you as king? Tell me what you need and I'll give it to you. All right, so here is how Second Chronicles reads about that same situation. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 1. Solomon, the son of David, strengthened himself upon his kingdom and Yahweh his God was with him, and he made him exceedingly great. Yahweh made Solomon great. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the leaders of the thousands and the hundreds, and to the judges, and to every prince of all Israel, to the chiefs of the fathers' houses. Now, unless you understand in the, in the Hebraistic uh, uh, development here, it, it just says, and he spoke, well, what did he say? Well, what he did was he told them all to come and join him in worship at Gibeon. All right, that's what he says. And we have that account here in 2 Chronicles. So he spoke to all of them, all the leaders and so forth. And Solomon and the entire assembly with him went to the high place that was in Gibeon. Gibeon was like a mega church, if you will. There were other smaller churches, if you want to call them that, the high places where people would gather and worship, but just a few families here and there. But this was the big one. This was where the, the, the tabernacle was set up. Uh, and so they went to the high place. They all, the, the leaders, all of them, thousands gathered to worship there with Solomon. It was, it was the uh, high place that was at Gibeon for there was Elohim's tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle, which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had made in the desert. But David had brought up the ark of Elohim from Kiriath Yirim in the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. And the copper altar, the brazen altar, the brass altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he placed before the tabernacle of Yahweh and Solomon and the assembly sought it. They went to it. They sought it out. And Solomon there offered up on the brace, brazen brass copper altar before Yahweh, which belonged to the tent of meeting. And he offered up on it a thousand burnt offerings. So this is the second Chronicles account of what we just saw in first Kings. And it, it gives us a little more of a, of a perspective of how they all came to Gibeon because Solomon spent a great deal of time and effort to send messengers to all of these leaders of groups of people all across the land. And he said, I want you to join me in a certain, in a certain time, at a certain time, Gibeon. Solomon is establishing his kingdom religiously or worshipfully, I should say, so that the people could see him worship them, uh, lead them in worship. And thus he would, he would make this worship very important to the people. 
Now understand this is leading up to the building of the temple itself. The people, Solomon probably didn't understand this, but you know, we just read where Yahweh worked through him to build his kingdom. The people have to have a heart for worship before they can appreciate, understand, and support the temple that Solomon will build. So they're, they're seeing Solomon give the example. So now Solomon prays for wisdom. This is a, uh, we all have studied this as kids in Sunday school. Solomon said, you have done your servant David, my father, great kindness as he walked before you in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. And you've kept for him this great kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now Yahweh, my God, Yahweh, Elohe, Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king instead of David, my father. And I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. I don't know how to make an entrance and I don't know how to make an exit. The thing here is that Solomon, in Israel, the king in most nations that were a kingdom, the king is the final appeal and judge for all things. Uh, he's the Supreme Court of the Supreme Court of the Supreme Court. So they would bring to him, finally, it, there would be an appeal process, but finally, uh, a difficult case could be appealed to the king and the king then would make the final decision. And what, however he said it, the scribe would be writing down every time and when he, you know, whenever he would extend his scepter, he would, he would take his scepter from off of his thigh and he would go out with it. And what he's about to say is going to have to be law. In other words, be sure and write this down right. Uh, and then he would, he would make a decision um, regarding the case that was brought before him. So he says, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I want you to know that I understand that I'm a beginner in this thing. I'm just starting out. I need help here. And your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen. A great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Now this tells us that the work of David, which brought all the tribes together, had so, had, had so served to prosper the people and strengthen the kingdom that families were flourishing and they were growing and there was a great population. This is a great populated kingdom now. Give therefore your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and bad for who is able to judge this, your great people. These are the people of God. How can I be the final arbiter? How can I be the final one to make the final decision? This is a heavy burden. How can I discern between good and bad? So he asks for an understanding heart and for discernment. 
Now, Chronicles gives us a little bit different uh, slant. On that night, Elohim appeared to Solomon and he said to him, request, what shall I give you? Now, this is an imperative. This is, this is a command. You, God doesn't expect Solomon to be timid. He expects, God says to him, do this. Make this request. What is your request? What shall I give you? Solomon said to Elohim, you performed great loving kindness with my father, David. That's that covenant love. And he had a covenant, you know, the Davidic covenant. And you enthroned me in his stead. Now, Yahweh Elohim, may your word with my father, David, come true. For you have enthroned me over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now give me wisdom and knowledge and I shall go forth before this people and come in for who will be able to judge this great people of yours. Okay, a little bit different wording here, all of it inspired by the Lord. Here he asks for knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge. Now let me, let me take you back over to Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, you would read the testimony of old man Solomon himself. And in his witness, he would declare how much he knew. This guy in a modern era would have had a string of PhDs. He knew all there was about nature, astronomy, foreign laws and geography. I mean, he knew it all. This is his life. When God said, I'm going to give you this wisdom, God gave him also a thirst for knowledge. And he gave him a mind that could drink in the answers that he sought. So Solomon would, be, would, would, would end up being one of the most intelligent men who has ever lived through his own personal study. So now he has understanding, discernment, wisdom, and knowledge. All of this comes together, unlike at any other time in the life of any other man. And I shall go forth before this people and come in, for who will be able to judge this great people of yours? In other words, I will enter into the throne room and be seated on the throne. And Elohim said to Solomon, since this was in your heart, and you did not request riches, possessions, and honor, Neither have you requested the life of your enemies, nor have you requested many days, but you have requested for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you should judge my people over whom I have enthroned you. Wisdom and knowledge are granted you. Poof, just like that. And riches, possessions, and honor I shall grant you, such as that the, king, uh, the kings before you did not possess, and which will not be so after you. You know, we, we get deeper into the life of Solomon, we will take note at how the kings of the world sought his advice on things. And Solomon, who had come to the high place, which was in Gibeon, came to Jerusalem from before the tent of meeting, and he reigned over Israel. Yahweh 
gave him a mind and a spirit and an unction to be a student all of his life of everything about the world, whether it's rocks or trees or stars or rivers, waterfalls, animals, whatever. He drank and he was an extremely intelligent man, probably the only person maybe other than the Lord Christ who could have had more intelligence than Solomon might have been Adam himself. But other than that, Solomon stands at the top of the heap with this this ability to just, I guess he had, you know, he, he just had photographic memory and I don't know, he just had everything. And every decision that he would make as the king in behalf of the people would be the correct decision. That's what Yahweh say. I'm giving it to you because you have requested this as the king of the people and that you would do right to the people. You didn't ask for yourself, you asked in behalf of the people. So what this means is that it's an irrevocable promise of God such that even in Solomon's most sinful day, he still possessed the wisdom and the knowledge and discernment in making decisions in behalf of the people. And they didn't do too good on a personal level. Um, but as king, the Bible says here, there was never a king before or after like Solomon. So Elohim bestows wisdom, riches, and honor to Solomon. Now I have verse 18 with an asterisk because in the Hebrew Bible, this chapter ends with verse 18. In your Bible, I think it ends with verse 17. And what is verse 18 is actually in your Bible, verse 1 of the next chapter. You'll see that, I guess, when we get there. The speech pleased Adonai that Solomon had asked this thing. And Elohim said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, neither have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment, which he was the supreme judge. Behold, I have done according to your word. Behold, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there was none like you before you, nor after you, nor shall any arise like you. In other words, what God is saying, there will never be another leader of a nation who can make the right decisions like you. I'll have to agree with that. And I have also given you that which you have not asked both riches and honor so that there shall not be any among the kings like you all your days. Solomon, by the word of God in his day, will be the greatest, smartest, wisest, richest, most honored king of all other kings in the world. And if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David did walk, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon woke up 
And behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of Adonai and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. So here's how Second Chronicles follows up on that, beginning in verse 14. And Solomon amassed chariots and horsemen. Now this hadn't been done before. As a matter of fact, I think it's in Deuteronomy, there was a warning against the kings of Israel uh, amassing horses and chariots, but Solomon did. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So that was like uh, an infantry and uh, the charioteers, the chariots. And he left them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. So he had outposts for them. And the king made the silver and the gold in Jerusalem like stones. <laughs> must be nice. And the cedars he made as numerous as the sycamores that are in the lowland. And these, of course, this is high priced stuff, but it just came from his hand. He could plant and grow them. They were the best of all uh, the cedars. The ones he sought out were the best ones. The mines that he dug gave forth silver and gold. And it was just like digging in rocks. He was so wealthy. And Solomon's source of horses was from Egypt. And there was an assemblage from which the king's agents would buy the assemblage privileges for a price. And they bought up and they brought up and took out of Egypt a chariot for 600 pieces of silver and a horse for 150. And so to all the king of the Hittites and the kings of Aram, they would export through them. So he was, he was making a big profit. Uh, he married Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh is very appreciative. Maybe that girl was ugly. I don't know. He's having a hard time passing her off. I don't know what the deal is here. Um, but he was getting a good deal from Egypt and making a lot of money selling his horses. Solomon ordered to build a house in the name of Yahweh and a house for his kingdom. Now that verse 18 is verse one of the next chapter, I think in the English uh, Bible. Now, we end with a portion that is in 1 Kings that is not found in First Chronicles, uh, Second Chronicles. And it is the story, it's a story we all know of the wisdom of Solomon and how he judges and the example given here. Then came two women, they were harlots, to the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, oh, my Lord. And this woman, I and this woman dwell in one house. And I gave birth to a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after I'd given birth that this woman gave birth also. And we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house besides us two in the house. And this woman's son died at night because she laid on him and killed him. And she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your handmaid slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. And I rose in the morning to nurse my son and behold, he was dead. 
But I looked closely at him in the morning, and behold, it was not my son whom I had born. The other woman said, Not so. The living is my son, and the dead is your son. And this one said, Not so. The dead is your son, and the living is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. The king said, And the king said, This one says, This is my son that lives, and your son is the dead. And the other says, Not so. Your son is the dead, and my son is the living. The king said, Fetch me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one, and half to the other. And the woman whose son was the live one said to the king, for her compassion was aroused for her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means slay him. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor yours. Go ahead, cut it in half, divide it. The king answered and said, Give her the living child, and by no means slay him, for she is the mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of Elohim was in him to do judgment. It's an interesting interesting example of, uh, of the wisdom. He listens and he makes his decision, and he was so astute, he was so discerning that he knew the real mother would rather surrender the child than to see it killed. Well, we'll, uh, we'll stop there and we'll have our deacon prayer time.